Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Join Mason and Jake each week as they try new wines and discover how much government is in your drink. Welcome to another episode of Tasting Anarchy. I'm your host, Jacob Lindsay, and as always, I'm joined by... Mason Joseph. And it's just us this week since we've had uh, quite a few... We've had, I guess, two guests in a row, so Mm -hmm. we're back to the old... Mason and Jacob format, yeah, uh, which I guess does have sort of a a twist up that we added two or three weeks ago and didn't get back to, but now we're going to get back to it. <laughs> Correct with a word we can, neither of us can actually pronounce. I asked my wife, so I have it. I have it like oh. I have it. Uh, I'll highlight it in the notes. I have it sort of, sort of like uh, what is that called when you like write it out and it's like the correct way to make the sounds? Oh man, like your wife knows uh. how to do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't. I cannot think of it. Um, yeah, that's a great question, and I don't remember. Yeah. So I put I put it in there because Victoria was coaching me, but I'll still probably do it wrong because I was having a hard, we'll, I was having a really hard time with it. <laughs> we'll just have to have her come on the mic and yeah. tell us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I'll go ahead and read the word because you and I are both dr- uh, drinking wines that have it in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yes. it's Raka Citelli. No, she's shaking her oh. head. No, Ricazzitelli. She's gonna say it. Ricazzitelli. Ricazzitelli. Yeah, but that that C part I have a hard time with. So it's Ricazzitelli. It, it, like, it almost sounds like how you would say ricotta. Like yeah, and ricotta. But like you're saying instead of saying ricotta, like which is more of like the Italian way, but saying it as like American would say ricotta. Yeah, is almost kind of like how like I hear Victoria beginning to pronounce it. Now it's not how it goes in the end but. right right yeah so that's what it is and i'm gonna probably keep saying it wrong um but do you want to go ahead and review what you're drinking and then i'll tell everybody what i'm drinking well i have a surprise for you okay so i am drinking the 2016 horton vineyard virginian uh one of this it's a uh, 20 dollars at kroger my local one in the local available section so if you're in uh virginia beach you can go down to the um Oh my goodness, I can't remember the, the, whatever the Kroger Marketplace is in Virginia Beach, you can figure it out. Um, 20 bucks, I, it's very light in taste, uh, it's, it's actually starting to develop some bubbles, like there's some carbonation in it, so like, I don't know if it's mildly carbonated, um, has an incredibly long taste on the tongue, so like after I swallowed it, like I just keep tasting it. Mm. Um, but it's light in taste and mouthfeel has, um, mild acidity, not really super strong, but not also weak. You know, you can, it, you tell us there to me, it tastes of white fleshed fruit, but not particularly one strongly of any other. Mm-hmm. But my wife thinks it's, um, taste of granny Smith apples, which to me would mean it's very tart, but to me it has a tartness to it, but also a sweetness where it's like just on the edge of tart but not on the you know but not sweet okay um i really enjoy it now jacob we have had a horton vineyard wine before yeah we have uh was it norton was it a norton no horton i know but wasn't the wine don't they also make a norton i don't know if that's true or not that's a great question i think they Um, do because i think i've had that one horton vineyard well this is a wine, the only wine we've done on the show where I did not like it. Really, I- Chateau Le Cabin. Blackberry oh, wine. yeah, that's right. I forgot that was them. Yeah. Okay. 
I, I do. I, I, you know what? It's funny because I do still like that blackberry wine. It's not, I don't like it as much yeah. as I used to because I remember when we got it, I was like, this is still palatable and it's still not bad and it brings back a lot of memories, but it's not nearly as good as I remember. Yeah. Now, what's funny is, or interesting is they do ship to Texas. Okay. Um, they do a vignette or... I think Rowdy pronounced it the other day or one of one of our yeah Rowdy pronounced it and was you know very interesting the way he pronounced it they also do an Albarino oh okay and they ship to Texas so it's one of those ones I thought about like you know kind of doing some you know Virginia specific ones and we could get like a Virginia Albarino sent out to you oh that'd be kind of cool um and then you know get it like if you come out in uh if you actually come down you know when you're talking about coming out in November maybe bring a Texas one. You know, we could do some yeah. stuff like that to kind of do some more drinking the same wines again. But yeah, I, here's the thing is like, this is a really good white. Um, 20 bucks is a little expensive. Um, I have the 2016, the one on the sites, the 2017. Um, I'd really put this more in the $15 range, but because it's a Virginia wine mm-hmm. and Virginia wines are, yeah. <laughs> Virginia's finally coming up in profile and finally getting more out there and, and, you know, doing what they should be doing. And I I have a story about a one vineyard I actually went and toured and I've, I've got some stuff that I don't think I told you that I did while I was out there, Jacob, yeah. um, that we'll go into later, but I'm happy to spend the money to support a Virginia vineyard. Um, again, I think the price points probably should be more like 15 bucks, but I'm not in any way displeased by this, and uh, yeah, it's a pretty solid white. Oh, nice. Okay. I Actually, I did look it up. They do a Norton, which is a American grape varietal. Mm. Um, and I, oh, and like I, an actual wine? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Wine type. Yeah, okay. wine I type. I yeah. didn't understand. I, I thought you were just saying like they had a Norton other name. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> the, like, the, the, the Norton okay. grape varietal, which I have had, and I don't remember anything about it, though, because I, I looked it up because okay. I was like, I, I'll recognize the label, and I do recognize it. It's uh, up on their website. Um, I, I have a good I have a good memory for labels. So, uh, you do. Yeah, yeah. And I, I, it's so funny that, they, that they're the ones who do the Chateau Le Cabin, because uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I loved those when I first started in wine, was, was those, the Blackberry and the Raspberry wine. Yeah, man, and oh, it's a twelve point five percent alcohol by volume. Okay, so. all right. Well, that's actually twelve point five percent is uh, what mine is as well, which is also uh, was actually uh, called. <sighs> Let me try to pronounce it. Sinadali, Sinadali. It's a Georgian. I'm going to spell that. Yeah, yeah. Spell it out. T s i n a n d. A-I-L. Mm-hmm. No, excuse me. A-L-I. Yeah, A-L-I. Yep. <laughs> still, still managed to misspell it. So it, it's, a, it's a Georgian. Um, it's their typical blend, which has a Raka Tiseli in it. Um, and also the other varietal that it is blended with is Mustavine. Mustavine? Mustavine is Mus- how Mustavine. I want to pronounce yeah, so, it, but I, I, think, I think the... The stops that you're putting in there are probably much closer. Okay, yeah, it's M T S V A N E for anybody who wants to look it up. So it is um, a little bit tough to pronounce. So, anyways, the name of this wine is uh, it's from Estate. Um, let me see the estate real quick. Uh, oh, they don't even have it on here. 
<laughs> I don't know how to read this label, but uh, th- that name is actually the region that it is um, that the the wine comes from, and that's a very typical blend for them in Georgia. I think this is actually very acidic. Um, hmm. it, it is so bouquet, like smell wise, I would say is a little bit citrusy, kind of like it does have a little bit of grassiness to it. The taste is similar, but also has a bitter aftertaste, which isn't unpleasant. Ooh. It's just unusual. Okay. Uh, and uh, but it's very refreshing. I could I could see drinking this outside. Twelve point five percent alcohol by volume. You can drink quite a bit of it and be fine. Um, well, depending I guess on your tolerance level. For for <laughs> for me, it you know I'm usually drinking between fourteen and sixteen percent uh, for my robust my robust red wines, and um, that's this is very low for that. And I'll probably finish the bottle tonight. There's not very much left. But it's it's good. Uh, I, I am almost one hundred percent sure that I've reviewed this before, uh, if not this, hmm. if not this same one, one from this area, because I it, I get it at the Russian store. It's like thirteen dollars at the Russian store. They have a couple. They have a dry red that I like. That's uh, I think it's uh, Saparavi, and mm-hmm. and then this one, which is their dry white. And I think that the the dry white from the Russian store is also very good, and they're cheap. So. If you guys have a Russian store in your area, that's a good place to go. Now, the interesting thing about about Georgian whites is that they do tend to be older than whites in either Western Europe or the United, United States. This is a 2014, so they do age them, but they're mm-hmm. aged differently. They're aged in clay to uh, bring out a little bit more of the minerality of the grape. And also because it's a high-altitude grape, and they do tend to be very, very sour or have a lot mm-hmm. of acidity. Uh, they do try to brick them for a really long time. So they usually harvest in late October, which is is cold in, in Georgia. And mm-hmm. um, once they've harvested, then they do let it kind of sit for a while, try to let some of that acidity, you know, even out. And uh, it, it produces a good wine and an ex- inexpensive wine at this point. I don't know if it's inexpensive because... There's not, it's not great Georgian wine, although this is from the most prestigious wine region in Georgia, uh, or for whites at least, um, or is it inexpensive because there's not a lot of demand for it in the United States yet? And I'm not sure which it is, but I, I would say this is, this is on par with any $20 um, Sauve Blanc or something like that that you would get at Total Wine. How much did you pay for it? Uh, I think it's, th- it's $13, $12.99. Okay. I so I think it's the exchange rate to Georgia is extremely low, and I think it's also um, like Georgia's kind of like Chile in Argentina, where their profile is growing, even though their profile it's kind of like when you're super poor, but you're the richest poor person. Yeah, it's like oh man, he's got a pair of Jordans, and you're like I wear different Jordans every day. <laughs> you know, yeah. like when you're an American, it's like oh what's the difference like and so i think you know it's like oh this is the best wine from georgia and when you're the you know the head of the ussr you're like oh yes very good wine and yeah. you know the italians might be like oh yeah it's it's serviceable when realistically it's like no this is really good wine but i think it's also like again because of some of the the differences in the european winemaking style for western europe yeah. compared to eastern europe i think Eastern Europe follows much more of the kind of American styles or like Americans kind of like does like their own thing where it's like, no, we're just going to, we're going to see what happens. And I think that's kind of the same thing there where it's like, it's not a consistent product always. And I think that's kind of some of the issues there. It's like, 
they really know what they're doing and they produce what they're looking for. But from a consumer standpoint, it's maybe not as consistent. Yeah. It's like some like the Bordeaux where it's like, you know, oh, the left bank, blah, blah, blah. It's going to be this specific thing. Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, it's from these guys. Well, their their profile is they like that that weird bitterness that you were talking about. Yeah, it does does have an – yeah, the bitterness is is unusual. I mean, (coughs) it's not like – it, it, there's a familiarity to it. There is some sort of mm-hmm. bitterness that it reminds me of, but I can't. I can't exactly place it. Um, I, I would also say that probably one of the other reasons why Georgians are not as in demand yet, although it is growing, um, it, and and Eastern European, uh, you know, they grow this in in Moldova and Ukraine and and um, you know Romania and places like that. Well, they also grow it in, in there, yeah. but in so, former Soviet countries. Mm-hmm. Um, the palate for Eastern Europe does tend to be for sweet wines rather than dry wines. Mm-hmm. And so what they're offering a lot of times is either a semi-sweet or sweet or off dry. And that doesn't sell as well here. So like when I go into, we went actually to the, we normally go to the CCCP Mart um, in Plano, which is the, what we call the good Russian store. And uh, which CCCP for everybody is the, is the Cyrillic letters for USSR. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's the one that we like. They actually have a very small wine selection. They only have about five types that you can choose from. And they're all, they're all uncle Joe's, Well, they're this, this brand, which I, again, I can't, I can't figure out who, who this is because they just have, <laughs> it's just the name of the region mm-hmm. and the importer, which is uh Dozord Sev and sons, which is very Russian. Um, but, uh, anyways, they have like uncle Joe's wine, which has got like a drunk Stalin on the labels and mm. which are, which are kind of fun, but, but, uh, but it's, it's bizarre to see, this is sort of a, a side note. It's bizarre to see like people have a positive view on Stalin, even from that region. Yeah. When it's like, really? Like, really? But I... Yeah, but I think people have nostalgia, like, so I. But it also might be the removed that could be of it, and they also might be just enjoying making poking fun at him, like he was a drunk. And that's true. Like you know what I mean? Like it it draws the because you know it might be one of those it's made for export, mm-hmm. and oh it draws the eye. Like you know everybody yeah. knows Stalin. And, oh Uncle Stalin, they really liked him there. Yeah, and you know it. It's just kind of like, hey, I'm going to profit on this son of a gun. Yeah. Well, yeah. I still haven't brought myself to buy one yet because every yeah. time I see it, I'm like, I just can't buy a Stalin wine. But <laughs> uh, but I have bought so – anyway, so their selection's low. We went to the other one, which is called Euro Deli, um, which I – their service is not as good, but I think it's a better selection. And they do, mm-hmm. and they actually have a lot of Eastern European wine. So they actually got mm. they got some new stuff in recently. So they had um, some Serbian wines in there. Uh, they had a, they always have a lot of Moldovan, a lot of Romanian. Um, hang on, just a second. I think my dogs are fighting with each other. One minute. Okay. I guess Mulder's just being a crybaby. No, I mean he's a little dog, so yeah, you know, uh, yeah. So, anyways, what I was saying is they they had some Serbian, some Croatian, uh, Romanian, uh, they a lot of Moldovan. Nobody has Ukrainian, which is interesting because uh, I do know there is a Ukrainian wine production, but I think most of it was in Crimea, 
Mm-hmm. And that's no longer like a place that we're allowed to get stuff from. So, yeah. Um, so I that's I guess the the deal there. But but I do know Odessa has has a has a wine region and they do grow stuff there. So I don't know why we're not getting like Odessan wine or something like that. But anyways, uh, I I don't recall my point on that. But the what I I guess the point was that. Maybe one of the reasons why we don't see a lot of this is because it's impossible to pronounce a lot of the varietals. That's one thing. And then <laughs> the other the other thing is that a lot of what they're producing is for the Eastern European palate because it's easier to sell locally or, or at least regionally. And the biggest market there is Russia. Mm-hmm. And Russia has a sweeter wine palate. They want Cahor. They want... Uh, these these semi sweet or off sweet uh, wines and um, so I don't know it, it is interesting it's it's interesting to see I, I do like this varietal uh, I have a little bit of the history because we are doing wine grape history in our regular yeah. episodes you want me to tell you a little bit about it well first okay. let me tell you and the listeners about my trip to Chantham Vineyards at Church Creek. In um, on the eastern shore of Virginia. Cool. So they have it's a three hundred acre farm, and it's an active farm um, where they have twenty one acres under vine. So they have about an acre of Petite Verdot. Mm-hmm. Now, my it, what I asked, and apparently everybody asked this, is Are you guys going to do a you know, 100% Petite Verdot because they use it for blending. Mm-hmm. So the Cab Franc is blended with Petite Verdot. Mm-hmm. And my problem with that was, so I went out there because I like wanted, like Eastern Shore Virginia is like, when growing up, I always thought that was the wine area in Virginia. And it's not really, there's like two, two wineries out there and this is one of them. This was the closest. It was about 20 minutes from where I was staying. Um, because we went on vacation for the listeners. We went on vacation out there um, last week. It was awesome. So if you can visit the Eastern Shore of Virginia, do it. It's awesome. Um, and then the winery was really cool. And I think you would have really liked it, Jacob, because it was like in these back roads. And I like you turn on to the like this road and it's like a private road, but it leads to this like I thought I was going to this like big estate yeah. like place. And then it's like turn here and you go here and then it's like an industrial building. <laughs> and oh, interesting. They that's where they were doing the tasting, but that's also where all the wine barrels were. Oh, so cool. like behind them, you know, like they had like they do it in new oak and it, like you could see the oak barrels and they had the burpers on the barrels still mm-hmm. and you could see the casings. And in the back, after I did so like I tasted their rose, their chardonnay, and they do a chardonnay on steel and they do a chardonnay on new oak. Mm. And I thought the Chardonnay was really good. Their rosé was pretty good to me. Ashley thought it was a little different. Um, she asked me to get a rosé for her if I was buying bottles. Um, so I did their rosé, and then like I did their Cab Sauv. I did their Cab Franc. I did their um, Late Harvest Blend. No, I didn't do the Cab Sauv. I did their Late Harvest Blend, which was really interesting because mm-hmm. um, they try to keep stuff on the vine. So like they're harvesting now. They were harvesting the Cab Franc while I was there. Oh, wow. And they were actually... That's early. Deist- well, it's late September. So I, I guess I guess that's true. I guess it's not super especially, early. Yeah. Especially in Virginia. Like, it's yeah. hurricane season. Yeah, that's true. So, you know, keeping the fruit on the vines and, like, the eastern shore, which gets hit with the hurricanes, that's pretty dangerous. Like, that's kind of what the lady who was doing my tasting told me. Mm. But they actually 
let me go into the back to see where they were their destemmer. Oh, cool! So like, well, I got to see that, and like, I got to see the big stacks of like the wine and their their or the grapes, and like she was telling me about like how they destem and it goes into this tank and like giving me this whole thing. So it was really really interesting. They do about five hundred cases of all the wines they do, and I got one of their dessert wines for if you do come out like for us to kind of do on the show as like a this is really weird tasting because it was really interesting. Yeah, because it was like they like. I think I knew this about ice wines, but I didn't remember because they do this in the ice wine style. They start fermenting it and then they freeze the water out of it. Oh, interesting. I, so I, I like, didn't. I guess I did. I don't know if I knew that or not. Yeah. So I don't know if this is what makes it the ice wine style or not. But basically, like they make this blend of their wines that they're doing, and they start fermenting it, and then at a certain point they start freezing it, and that pulls the water out of it, and that like jacks up the alcohol percentage to like 18 percent, but it was super sweet but like i was really glad i didn't take the whole first sip like in one go i took a like as she was saying it i took a half a sip and it was super sweet mm -hmm. but when i took the second sweet sip it was like plummy and like the sweet just burned itself out basically what we need to do and, like i think is if we do that sweet together mm-hmm what do you say it tasted like? Plum? Yeah. It was red? Yes. Okay, we need to have like a very sweet plum pudding or something like that to go with mm -hmm. it. Because I, I learned this when I took that uh, WSET class was that when you pair a sweet wine with a very sweet dessert, it makes mm -hmm. the sweet wine really outstanding because then you start tasting all of the other flavors that are in it. Which is probably why gotcha. on the first one it tasted really sweet and then the second one you started tasting other things. Yeah, so but the so going back to your wine and there being like a bitterness or something in mm -hmm. there, the Cab Franc had something else in it to me. Like it didn't taste like what I was expecting from Cab Franc. It wasn't as aggressive as I was hoping it was, and it seemed to have kind of an off taste. Now mm -hmm. in a tasting, like you know, these were bottles that had been uncorked, and who knows how long they'd been uncorked, um, but they weren't opened. You know, like. It wasn't like the wine had been sitting out in a full glass for, you know, an hour and a half to get there. But it had like something kind of familiar in the flavor, but also like undeterminable to me. So hmm. it was, you know, it was a great experience. I really recommend going to the winery. But I was like, oh, man, like they're giving me all this information. And I was just like, where's my pen? Like, how do I write this down? So we should see we, could, we should see if one of somebody from there wants to come on. Yeah. That'd be fun. Yeah, apparently, like, she, like, picked wine in Smithfield or something like that. I was just like, what's going on? Yeah. Oh, <laughs> so, interesting. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that would, that would be a fun a fun conversation. That sounds like yeah. a really great a great weekend. That was, you did that while you were, you did that while you were camping with uh, your family? Yeah. Yeah, so we, we went to the Eastern Shore to go camping, and then, like, I, while my daughter was napping, just took a, you know, just took a drive out there. Okay. Uh, to check it out. She was napping in the car or or at no, the no, no. place. She she was napping in the cabin. Oh, oh, okay. So how often do kids nap? Just uh, on, on a side. My daughter naps every day. Well, I mean, like, like how long is it? Is it like a day nap? Like, oh, this was really interesting. So she used to be, um, she used to not. So while we were on the while we were on the trip. She normally wakes up about 6 because we get up at 6 during the weekdays 
she slept till like 8.40 most days hmm. and went to bed at like 8. And she goes down for a nap around noon and usually is up by one thirty, two o'clock. And there were days that she went to sleep a little later, but we had to get her up several times. So, I mean, her her napping schedule was way off mark. Oh, weird. Okay. It was really interesting. Yeah, I was wondering that because when I was up visiting my sister last week, I, like, there there was no consistency to, like, the nap of my niece. And I was like, what, mm-hmm. what is this, how does this work? Like, do they just go for a nap when they feel like they're tired? Or is there a time? Or is it because family's in town, so she's not getting the nap when she should be getting the nap? That kind of thing. Yeah, my daughter goes down at the same time because her school also does a nap at noon to okay. two. So that's her. That was her already. Her her nap schedule used to be one to three mm. before she started going to school. Um, but since she started going to the school that she goes to, it's become that. Okay, it's become going, um, getting up at noon or going to noon to two. Okay, um, and she normally doesn't nap that long. But yeah, she just super. Like, super intense amount of napping. Well, I mean, she was probably... You, didn't you say she had, like, the sniffles and stuff before? Correct. And she still does kind of, but, like, she was just... Also played a lot and, you know, all that stuff. But, like, mm-hmm. it was it was another level of napping. Right on. That's uh, that's uh, that's Mulder right now. He's he's uh, taking a lot of naps. <laughs> that sounds like a dog. <laughs> hey, hang on a second. Victoria's talking to me. Sure. Oh, on the thing? Good. Okay. All right. <laughs> I got... So, okay, this is for the listeners who, who probably by now are going like, why do you keep getting interrupted? So I, I don't know that I explained it very much on the last episode. I have a new puppy, um, mm-hmm. Mulder, which you guys can go uh, to Tasting Anarchy on Instagram and see video and pictures of. And uh, I I built... Or I didn't really build it. It's just, it's just a tray that goes underneath a kennel. And then I put sod mm-hmm. in the tray. So it's a very large for like a big dog. I put a, I got a very big one that I put sod in it, and mm-hmm. and put that out on the back porch, so that when he needs to pee or poop because puppies need to pee or poop a bunch, we don't have to keep yep. bring. We live in an apartment, so we don't have to keep bringing him back out to the back area. So, uh, I mean, I we still we still bring. Well, actually, I haven't been bringing Foxy on her normal walks because I've had Mulder and he doesn't walk as well. I usually mm-hmm. bring Foxy for a two-mile walk in the morning and then, like, a three-mile walk in the evening. And when Mulder gets a little bigger, we'll continue that. And, and I do take Foxy by herself. Sometimes I'll take Mulder on a short one with her, and then I'll stop back at the apartment, drop him off, and then take her for a longer one. Mm-hmm. But So I set this up in the in on the back patio so that he could go out there more frequently than what we are able to bring him out. Um and I didn't want to get like the astroturf or whatever because I was worried it would stink a lot more than like regular grass, which the grass will probably stink too, and I'll throw it away and get new ones because it's like two dollars and fifty cents a uh, like a square. <laughs> so I was like, well, I'll just I'll I'll do it until it's dead or until it stinks, and then I'll just go get more because it's Texas mm-hmm. and they have sod all year long, which they probably do in Virginia too. I don't know, but. Uh, like there's yeah, not there's not like no a, I don't think it's that cheap. Yeah, there's there's no like sod season or whatever here. It's just always there, and um, so we I'll just go get more of it and put it out there, and then he can pee in that. But uh, Victoria was 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 congratulating me in general because he just went out there and peed on it and pooped on it and didn't pee in the house. Yeah, yeah. So which we were very happy about. Uh, oh, that is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. 
All right. Well, uh, enough of this like talk of puppies and and people or puppies and children. Let's uh, <laughs> well, children. I guess Let's, are people. Yeah. So the uh, the winery that mine came from pre- recommended pronouncing it Arcad. So we will call it Arcat for the rest of the episode to save our listeners from our shenanigans of pronunciation. Yeah. Okay. So Arcat. Let's do a, a short history of Arcat. And maybe I'll cut in Victoria's pronunciation of it uh, here later. Uh, so it's from Georgia. It's a it's a Georgian native. Um, it's the highest quality and the highest quantity in Georgia come from the Kakheti region in Georgia. Uh, it's one of the oldest grapes known. So one of the oldest grape varietals that have been cultivated known. So there's been clay vessels found in Georgia with seeds from this grape that date back to 3000 B.C. Uh, so that's among the oldest that we we have evidence of, or that we have genetic evidence of. We do have we do have uh, winemaking evidence that goes back, I think, to almost ten thousand BC. Or mm-hmm. no, no, ten thousand would be like Gobekli, Gobekli Tepe. I think it's like I think it's like five thousand or six thousand. It, it, winemaking is very old. I'll, I'll have to look it up later. Uh, but this is the oldest, like where they found seeds, and they were like, oh yeah, this is this seed. Uh, mm-hmm. So among among the oldest. Uh, it used to be very, very popular in the USSR, uh, used from everything from fortified wines to table wines. Um, before the vine pool scheme of Gorbachev, uh, it was the world's most widely planted white grape. <coughs> so, for those of you who don't know... But- hey! Hang on. Sorry, guys. <laughs> Sorry, Victoria had to go get something from the Amazon box, so I'm in charge of the dogs. Uh-huh. Alright, anyway, so, uh, for those of you who don't know... Uh, Gorbachev had this like anti-alcoholism thing in the 80s and as part of that he was like oh well we'll just like pull out all the grapevines and um, <laughs> which is silly but so they, they pulled out a whole bunch of grapevines a lot of really old growth grapevines so that, that really decimated this varietal but you know there were still a lot of people growing it and uh, it ended up being all in all it ended up being okay what I guess like the silver lining is that like places that used to be like wine industrial powerhouses like Moldova, a lot of that was pulled out. So uh, and a lot of it wasn't great, great stuff anyways. And so like a lot of the good stuff stayed, and a lot of the bad stuff was what was pulled out because the the co ops and that sort of thing they they kind of like pushed to to keep the best vines. Uh, mm-hmm. Now granted, a lot of a lot of good vines were pulled out too. But uh, that's a that's a topic for another time. Um, Still, still the number one white grape variety in, in many uh, former Soviet countries, and for wine growing countries that were former Soviet countries, it does have a respectable uh, showing. And you know, so like place like I don't think it's the number one white varietal in in Moldova or Serbia, but it has a it's a it's a large enough percentage that it's notable. Uh, so, anyways, this this grape is growing in popularity in the New World, and um, particularly in places like the Finger Lakes region of New York, due to its cold hardiness. So, mm-hmm. uh, there is more that you guys can find out about our cat uh, on uh, WineSearcher.com, where I got most of this information from. It is a very interesting grape varietal. I think it's going to be it's an up and comer for white wines because it does have it's very refreshing it's very similar uh it taste wise i wouldn't say it's exactly the same as like sauv blanc um but it it does have a lot of the refreshing qualities that sauv blanc have that make it a really nice like pool side wine uh mm-hmm. it's also 
it's also very good grown in cooler climates and uh, we have an expanding wine region into cooler climates and so this I think we might be seeing a lot more of this in places where it's difficult to grow European varietals and they still want to do European varietals they don't want to do the American hybrids uh, which you know I, we we briefly touched on it last episode with when we had Ricky on I went to a vineyard in Nebraska which was all American hybrids and I don't want to like shoot their wine down or anything like that because it was what they're doing is what they're doing and it and I'm I'm actually very impressed by what they're doing but there's a reason reason why American hybrids are not the number one grapes so mm-hmm. um there's that and maybe places that are very cold like that could grow something along these lines because this this does make a very it it definitely is a higher quality taste than a American hybrid grape. I mean, maybe maybe we could do something like Blanc de Bois, and like this is actually fermented similarly to Blanc de Bois, it's fermented at lower temperatures. Um, mm-hmm. So you do get some interesting, like this one in particular has it, the flavor wise, it does have some apricot and like. Um, more citrusy notes to it. I, I'd be curious to see yours because I wonder if they're fermenting it in a different style. And just Probably. To, yeah, just to see Probably. see what you know what's the difference. Like this is in clay. Yeah. Yours might be in concrete or it might be in steel. Um, so it could be just a completely different thing. Yeah, and that's the I would like to see. Like personally, for me, like mine at least, I think let lend itself to being blended with um, the one. The one white that neither of you or I seem to really care for, Chardonnay. Oh, yeah. Like, I think it would go really well in a Chardonnay blend, but that's just me. I actually like and, I and, like Chardonnay better than I thought when I had unoaked Chardonnay. I was like, oh, well, I understand this a little bit better. Yeah, um, and that's the thing is, when I was out at um, Chantham, they had the unoaked Chardonnay, and I ended up liking the oaked Chardonnay more. Really? Which I normally don't. So was it was it neutral oak or was it like uh, new oak or ha- do you know how they did it? Great question. I knew at the time. I don't know now. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I'd, she, I'd be she curious. Said it was like new oak or something. I I, I asked. Yeah, it was new oak. Okay. Because usually they I didn't usually ask if it was American or French. Okay. Because so. usually that new oak imparts like a butteriness or like uh, more spices and things like that to it. Um, so I I don't know. I'm just kind of curious. Like you know. Actually, we should go out there if I'm ever out there for yeah. an extended period of time and just how, how long, how far away is it from your house? Like an hour and 20 minutes. Like, yeah, that's doable. Really not far. Yeah, that's doable. We could, we could go out there and just kind of like check it out and stuff. That would be kind of fun. Yeah. And so, yeah, but you're right. You know, maybe in November I'll, I'll come out because uh, I thought your suggestion for that was actually a good suggestion. Yeah. Um, but we'll see if that's doable. Sounds like a plan. Yeah. All right, um, so that is the the brief history of Rakatelli, is how I'll say it, um, or Arcat, as they were referring to it at your vineyard. As they were recommending, yeah, because <laughs> uh, it is very difficult to say it. Um, do you want to? Do you have anything else you want to talk? God damn it, that dog! All right, anyways, I'm gonna ignore him. He's he's just barking at Foxy. Okay. Um, <laughs> Do you want to go ahead and get into the article? or do Yeah, you... let's get into the article. All right. All right. So this is an, actually, I, I pulled this specifically because it's Chris Mercer again, who I like, who's one of the reporters at De- Decanter. Mm-hmm. He's very not polarized or anything. He's just, he, I mean, his, his journalism style is there's no editorial. It's just straight up, this is what's happening. There's 
like there's one thing in this article where I was like, well, you didn't really need to say it that way. And then I read how he said it about the other side. And I was like, oh, he's actually very balanced in this. So I'll go ahead and summarize the article. So the article is called uh, Runway Clear for Trump Tariffs on Bordeaux, Barolo, and Champagne. Uh, this is a report. Um, it's just Dash report. So anyways, it's from Decanter. <laughs> it's, yeah, Decanter Magazine. Uh, by Chris Mercer. So the the WTO, or World Trade uh, Organization, arbitration panel has given the green light to U.S. to hike tariffs on European products in retaliation for, quote, unfair EU subsidies paid to Airbus Group. So that was, uh, he didn't quote this, he just said unfair EU subsidies, Mm -hmm. um, which I thought was, I went, oh, that's a little bit biased because unfair is subjective. Um, Mm -hmm. But... I would probably agree. I don't think subsidies are ever fair. So anyway, so unfair (laughs) EU subsidies to Airbus Group. So uh, individuals involved in the wine world are particularly worried as wine has been a target point in the Trump administration. Uh, No specific goods have been announced, however, for these uh, tariffs. So some U.S. merchants have already reduced orders from European producers due to general concerns of tariffs. U.S. and EU have both sought approval from the World Trade Organization to impose new tariffs. The U.S. in response to subsidies paid to Airbus, and the EU in response to subsidies paid to Boeing. <laughs> so, like in in both these cases, I kind of go like, why don't you guys just agree to stop subsidizing people? Yeah, like why would you just or, why would you argue at new tariffs when you should just not subsidize or, these companies. Or if you're both doing it, why are you trying to do more tariffs? Yeah, exactly. Like it doesn't make any sense to me. So, like, yeah. Uh, so anyway, so previous previously tensions between tr- uh, the Trump administration and France. I spelled that totally weird, but uh, and France have uh, been high. But after Marcon and Trump met at the G7 summit, things have cooled off. Uh, so then I put a little note here that says talk about the quotes at the end. So the end, they have a couple of quotes from uh, U.S. merchants and, and importers who basically they're just talking about um, why they've decided to decrease imports from France and – well, not France, but Europe in general. And, it, and it's because they are concerned that these tariffs will end up – they'll make these orders. They'll be obligated to fulfill these orders, but then they'll have these huge tariffs to pay on it. Yeah, and it's just basically going to end up being not profitable. Yeah, exactly. Have done it. Yeah. So here, here's the quote that I, I just kind of wanted to read real quick, and it's um, this. It says, uh, "We have temporarily drastically decreased our European wine purchases as we fear a potential increase in import tariffs." Uh, that's from uh, Sean Bishop, CEO of California-based JJ Buckley. And um, so that was prior to the the WTO ruling. So I guess he made a wise decision because now they're saying uh, it's okay. So the next the next quote says uh, the supply chain takes months to get wine into the U.S. So we do not want to risk getting stuck paying new unknown tariffs. Hopefully we will get clarity and time to react should anything materialize. And it's the same guy. So, mm-hmm. uh, so basically, I mean, this is this is kind of just something you and I have talked about, and I talked about it on Cork and Java. Is that one of the big problems with government in general is that uh, there's no certainty in what they're going to do. They they make laws on a whim. They they impose ter- tariffs on a whim, 
and you end up getting people making market decisions ahead of time that are then greatly impacted by these new regulations and new tariffs or new taxes or whatever. And because that's a thing, people decide instead of taking action, they decide not to take action. And that's sort of the unseen consequences, although there's there's some seen consequences in this case. Uh, but that's mm-hmm. sort of the unseen consequences in markets in general is that you don't know what people are not doing as a result of your government taxes, government regulations, and so on and so forth. It's that people are like, oh, well, this is going to do this great thing. This is going to offset the cost of these subsidies to Airbus. But at the same time, they don't realize that there's just a lot of people who are just like, we just aren't going to import things then. Yeah. It's like you're not – like you, you don't see the action that's actually happening. Like, like oh, we're, we're getting back at Airbus. It's like what does that matter? <laughs> Especially like after the Boeing whatever – the plane that they rush through that is basically killing people like every time it flies or whatever they had that you know recent scandals it's like okay well what airbus plane is having those problems yeah exactly yeah so you know what does airbus make by the way the only thing i remember is the was the was the concord jet an airbus plane no okay it wasn't it was Um, his own company uh it's like a joint venture it may have like led to airbus but yeah they they produce a lot of planes uh, i forget like delta flies a lot of airbuses i think hmm. so hmm. i mean it's the only competition that isn't chinese to boeing basically okay interesting all right well so that's that article and i and i think it, it illustrates a lot of yours and my position on trade in generals where it should just mm-hmm. be free but I, I you know i understand yeah. too like but a subsidy to you know also i'll reiterate this and, and listeners who are not really in the libertarian world like us may disagree but I'd be happy to hear your feedback. If you want to email us at tastinganarchy at um, gmail.com, I'll be happy to read it on air and respond to it. Um, A subsidy to Airbus is really them just paying us money if we want to buy Airbuses. So yeah, it does hurt Boeing, that's true. But they are taking money from their people and making Airbus planes cheaper for us to buy, so why wouldn't we? Yeah, and that's the thing. is like I don't think there's... like. I think con- you can't conclusively show it's actually hurting Airbus or Boeing. Mm-hmm. Like, you could be leveling a playing field that is so lopsided. It's like, you know, the it's like me giving subsidies to Red Hat against Microsoft. Right. You know, it it could be like the, there's no for sure guarantee that it's actually helping. Yeah. Well, hurting. And we could also we America. could we could even get into the. T- I don't know what Airbus does military wise, but like. With Boeing, I mean, I, I would say all all military spending is a subsidy. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, Boeing is is very much involved in the United States military. So, uh, that's that's one area where they are getting, I guess, undue. All right, sorry about that, folks. I had to take a quick break to go save my puppy from my other puppy. <laughs> but, uh, anyways, what we were talking about was. Um, Tariffs in general is that you you know you never know the I, I don't actually remember where exactly I was on that I I, I had a rant <laughs> yeah, basically what what you don't see with everything is when the government acts it creates market distortions so you're not seeing the economic activity that would have happened naturally in the market 
mm-hmm. what you're seeing is a weird offshoot and byproduct. So people yeah. who are happy about the tariffs are happy because they feel that their side, their industry, or whatever is going to be made better for this. But the people who were operating in the market previously and operating, let's say, in a market that was unimpacted by the government action at the time, now suddenly have to change the course of their actions and could result in the failure of many businesses that were, you know, hey, we like French wines. Yeah. So you don't, you know, you go and go, okay, well, we'll get a uh, 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 German, you know, I know German is not the right decision in this situation because it's a European wine, but like you go for German wines or something like that. And then all of a sudden, you know, tariffs are there. Or they, these don't meet the market need. And then you're going out of business because you had to make a decision that didn't meet with the rest of the market what the market actually wanted when before you were actually acting in the area that the market wanted because you were a profitable business. Right. Right. Yeah. And that makes sense. I mean, the, the, these, like it pushes people to do things that are oftentimes more extreme than they would have otherwise done. This is like a good example of this was a subprime, uh, subprime mortgage, uh, housing, uh, thing in 2008. Yeah. The bubble was that like now granted like a lot of these companies are basically just government institutions anyways but a lot of them were or and just regular banks were issuing issuing these mortgages based off of all of this data that was like severely severely distorted by government intervention and the same thing is kind of going on here is that like maybe what if there's like a huge boom and you know we'll use your example even though you know it is the same it's EU as well but uh, there's a huge boom all of a sudden in German winemaking because all the German wine got bought because there's no there's no tariffs on German wine but there's tariffs on French wine right mm-hmm. so um, so all of a sudden the Germans are like shit you know we're getting we're getting these signals that are saying that Americans love German wine we got to plant more vineyards and so they start planting more vineyards and lo and behold the tariffs are lifted a year later two years later and the Germans are stuck with a whole bunch <coughs> of vineyards that they are they that are producing grapes. That they can't sell. Yeah, and, and they're not even producing grapes yet. Yeah, not yeah, they're, exactly. They're you know, it'd be different if they were producing grapes. They could at least like make some profit by or, you know, make some money back by cutting the cost. Mm-hmm. Like or re- severely reducing the price. No, they're just stuck with stuff that nobody wants or in action where they let their fi- you know, like the French let their fields go fallow or don't maintain the vines. Like it's just you don't see what happens. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah. This actually this is really good, this wine. Good. I'm I'm just kind of like tasting it as I go and even though it's it has that bitterness or whatever, it, it's mm. much better now that it's warmed up. I think I'd started drinking it way too cold. Gotcha. But but now that it's warmed up a little bit, it's got like a lot more of that like apricot flavor. Mm-hmm. And it's like the color although the color hasn't changed, the color is just this kind of like really pleasant gold. Like straw mm. like straw color. Mine was like like little blonde head, blonde headed kid hair. Mm. It was very, very light. Interesting. I kind of want to. I have one that's like almost clear. That's a Texas Vignet that I kind of want to try because mm. uh, it has like a really, really clear color. So I'm like, what does this taste like? This is so. It has like yeah. no color at all. Um, well, so basically, we'll we'll wrap it up by saying okay. tariffs are bad. Yep, and they distort the market. 
and you don't know what you're losing and and sometimes you don't know what you're gaining from tariffs so like one of the things that's always kind of frustrating about tariffs and other government interactions is firms that wouldn't have existed now may exist and produce great products they may take advantage of a situation and then when the government then interacts again mm-hmm. it may destroy these people who were not trying to capitalize on the tariff itself necessarily yeah like a german wine product producer who sure. suddenly is selling out that never did sell out yeah. before yeah They're or, or i mean like and- yeah i mean that but even domestically the same thing is like let's say that because the the Fran- like a, a white bordeaux is no longer available People switch to Bordeaux style whites from California, and you know the tariffs. Let's say Trump gets reelected, which is seems very likely at this point. Um, he gets reelected; these tariffs continue for another four years. Uh, you're going to start seeing people acting on long term plans, thinking that this is the way it's going to be, because mm-hmm. there's not really any other way to act. And you're going to see, you know, expansions of white. Bordeaux style varietals from you know I'm not going to say this is exactly what's going to happen but a possibility would be places going like oh there's there's a glut in the market there's not very many white Bordeaux varieties or styles coming from France anymore let's expand the markets domestically and so they start expanding domestically and and that and it may be that they're producing very good wines but white wines from the new world are much fruitier they're much more tropical tasting than the, the kind of the mineraliness, the slatiness that you get from the old world, and it's a different thing. So if you know somebody else comes in in four years, and the tariffs are lifted as a result, and now you have an influx of all of these Bordeaux style wines, well, unless you built up like a, a customer loyalty or something like that, that is a huge, huge investment. Same as if if it was like switching to German, that's a huge mm-hmm. investment here for wines that are not going to be consumed. So, yeah. Or, you know, that's the thing is like you may have completely changed the market and these people who finally can re-import again are suddenly going to be importing into no market yeah. when they used to enjoy a very heavy market. That's, that's true. I mean, and that's actually we, we saw that recently, um, not necessarily through government influence, but like uh, rosés have gained so much popularity because of, you know, quote unquote millennials. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the millennial market or whatever is uh you know it's a big market it's it's young people they they have a lot of of money to throw around or whatever and they like rosé well rosé was was a, a niche market to begin with and now that it's bigger a lot of people are expanding into that area and and for better or for worse i actually I, there's a lot of rosés that i think are very good uh and we could see something similar as a result you know that's maybe we should do that as like a project and see like is there a good reason why rosés have started taking off we should see like like what are the most the largest regions that have expanded for rosés and see if there's any sort of like corresponding tariffs or something like that that'd be interesting it would be i think i think also like with a rise in rosé which is generally a sweeter red and you know it's different i wonder how much that's going to affect the like the Eastern European market, which doesn't seem to be facing the same sort of tariff pressure that yeah. the main European market is because they're, you know, like a hedge against Russia, which is again, government influence where Trump administration is like, well, why can't we be friends? And then the, you know, the Democrats lost their minds and we're like, Oh no, the Russians are coming. And you know, there's this huge pivot away from Russia. So, but like in, but it's a, 
the Trump administration is pulling this weird pivot still into these Eastern European countries. Yeah. So we could suddenly see like maybe the whole rosé market dies because these established European producers of sweet sweeter varietals come in. That's true. You know, I didn't I didn't think about that. That would be really interesting. And I think it would kind of come down to marketing is like how or who's after millennials. Um yeah, whatever also. whatever the next group is or whatever but like that could be the same thing is that you know younger people do tend to have a sweeter palate mm-hmm. and so maybe we will see like a, a large influx of eastern european wines into the u.s market as a result of people appreciating sweeter cheaper wines you know we, we do see the you know kind of the eroding of the american middle class as a result of federal reserve banking practices and people are looking at cheaper alcohol yeah and if you if they like wine, you know that's one of the reasons why rosé rosé is very popular. Is it's less expensive typically, and mm-hmm. um, Eastern European wine is very inexpensive. We could maybe see more people kind of looking at Eastern European wines as, as not only the price point but the the sweetness appeals to them. And, and actually, I'm a great example of that. Is one of the first wines that I really liked was Blackberry wine by Horton Vineyards. By Horton Vineyards, the one that you're drinking exactly, yeah. and I drank quite a bit of it. It was it was the only wine I drank for a while until I discovered Freak Show, mm-hmm. and it is. Once I tried it again after a very long period of time, I went, "Whoa, this is really sweet." Yeah. But at the time, I don't remember it being that sweet. I, I remember liking it a lot, and but it, mm-hmm. you know, it is. It's it's a younger kind of less experienced. I would say maybe less less refined to some degree, but like. At the same time, there is a lot of stuff to like about sweet wine if the sweetness is the right sweetness. So, yeah. and I think that wine has has a very good sweetness to it. So, you know, I don't. I think it is terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I I still like it, even though it is very sweet. Yeah, but I think you have a nostalgia factor in your enjoyment of things. That's true. And I think you're also when you were you made a barbacoa with three cans of. Um, chipotle peppers. Well, only two. Of, like, only two. Two. So two cans, but instead of just three peppers right. themselves, they right. used all two cans. And you ate it for three days, going, "I couldn't possibly feel bad because I'm eating liquid lava." <laughs> so you know, I think you have like, and this is something that I just say is a California thing because you and my wife do this. Yeah, where you have an inability to just admit sometimes that no, this is just bad, <laughs> like you'll admit it's bad and you'll still be eating it because you're like well i made it and my wife will be like yeah it's bad but i made it so you keep eating it and like i don't know if that's a california thing or maybe because you both grew up in like not as not that like my family it was you know affluent but no i think i think i think it's definitely like a lower middle class or upper poor class thing is that it's like it's here we paid for it we've got to finish it yeah, whereas I'm like, no, I'm throwing it away. It's terrible. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, and the thing is, is like that barbacoa. I, I still think it was very good. It was just, mm-hmm. it was just not good for me. Yeah, it's like one of those ones you got to like mix it with like a whole bunch of quinoa or rice or right. something. Right. Some, like yeah, something. And I don't, eat I don't eat. Yeah, and I don't eat either yeah. one of those things. So like, I was mixing it with a lot of sour cream, which I, I still like sour cream a lot, but uh, or like Greek yogurt. Or something like that, where to mm-hmm. kind of cut that heat, but it was just like it was just too spicy, too like. And yeah. and I think I told you I remade it with just three peppers, mm-hmm. and um and a little bit of the juice, and it turned out too spicy for Victoria still, but still very good I thought to me, and it didn't like wreak havoc on my stomach. Yeah, 
And so, like, that's the thing is, like, one of the things I think we also saw is, like, and I've seen some articles, and I, you know, I don't, everybody don't quote me on this, but, like, I think the rosé market is also starting to die off mm-hmm. because, like, it's become, like, because millennials are, like, hipsters, and, you know, it was, like, a hipster thing, so, like, but now older people like rosé. Yeah. And it's, like, and, you know, is that a shifting of, again, because of, like, Federal Reserve policy that's making the dollar weaker and all these things where it's basically, you know, eroding the american middle like all classes of americans and wealth so they're like moving into these you know cheaper wines and yeah other producer and you know are the producers also going like oh no no rosé is good it's like no rosé is cheap that's and true cheap and, and them to produce well and i've had actually some good dry rosés that i think are complex and very interesting i think part of the deal too with and you and i are millennials technically is with the millennial generation is that it is a really long young generation mm-hmm. because the millennial generation was was quote unquote young until like 35 yeah because of the bad economy they, you know they're still living with their parents or they're still being subsidized by their parents or in college for extended periods of time or whatever it is but what's so funny about this is like four generations ago you still lived with your parents at that age or your parents lived with you at that age, you know? What yeah, I mean? like but it was, but it was a little bit uh, a little bit of a different situation though, because at thirty five, everybody was married and had kids. Mm-hmm. You know, fifty years ago, so way more than that. Yeah, Go yeah. Well, seventy, eighty, yeah, seventy, years. yeah, right. But like, 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 I'm actually kind of old to not have kids. I'm thirty thirty two, and that's kind mm-hmm. of old to not have kids when comparing myself to like my parents or my my grandparents' generation. Yeah, uh, for, like my for, dad yeah. was around thirty when, like, around my age when we had my daughter. Yeah, yeah. Like, because we're both the same age, you and I. So, but yeah, like, I mean, I only have one kid. Yeah, my parents had subsequently had two more, but like, my dad was, you know, my dad's, my dad was thirty-two. Yeah, my dad was basically your age when I was born. Yeah, yeah, and well, but you think like my parents, my dad was nineteen when my older sister was born. And it wasn't an accident. Yeah. So, like, now granted, that my parents are a little bit different situation than I think a lot of people. But, but like, my grandparents were considered very old because they were in their mid-20s when they started having a family. So, mm-hmm. uh, but, you know, that generation, it would have been, you know, the man would have maybe been older, 30, close to 30, but the woman would have been much younger. And uh, I don't know where we were going on this, but... What I what I guess I was going to is that like yeah they is because of the what 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 is like Peter Schiff call it he's like it's like the prolonged adolescence where people are in college until they're like thirty years old mm-hmm. so they're basically still kind of kids because they don't have like a real career they don't have like a real job or anything like that because they're in college for like ten years yeah and uh, so that that prolonged adolescence it makes it so that they have tastes that require budget mm-hmm. um and granted even though their budget is is largely uh debt but <laughs> they're they are still buying stuff that's on the cheap so like people that so and you can see this with like a lot of the stuff that's popular with yours and my generation it's a lot of cheap stuff it's you know rosé can be very good and and even when it's inexpensive it can be very good I, i've had like i said I've had some very good rosés from I think uh, I think it's Piedmont in France does rosé really well. I could be mistaken on that, but I think it's Piedmont. Um, 
there's there's a lot of really good rosé coming out of uh, California. Decent rosé coming out of Texas. Uh, I know that Ricky, in I guess two episodes ago or last episode, he was he said he's doing a rosé, and he's actually roughly our age. I think he's about three years younger than me, so I think he's mm-hmm. so he's mm, you're a year older than me. So so I guess no, he's, I'm, I'm four months older than you. Oh oh, we're the same age. I literally just said we're the same age. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I had a whole bottle of this wine. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, but so you think about it, like it's like this is. You are you can make high quality rosé. There's nothing wrong with rosé, but it does tend to be cheaper in our market mm-hmm. at least. So, um, and you see this with other stuff too. Is like uh, you know people opening cereal bars where it's like you can go get Fruit Loops for you know five bucks or whatever. But it's like that's kind of expensive, but at the same time, it's like it's Fruit Loops, so it's cheap. Yeah, yeah, like so, like I mean, weird things like that. And that's the thing is like I. I would argue there's a lot more of people being just cheap and not having a not having a, a mindset of like saving and budgeting and yeah. like treating like a bottle of wine as an experience. They're just like, no, I'm going to drink like four bottles of wine. Tonight. Yeah, that's true. Well, and then, you know, you and I started out that way in a lot of ways, but we didn't do it with wine. We did it with beer. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't do it with cheap beer necessarily. Usually, we drank more expensive beer that was higher ABV, but like Yingling, we drank a lot of Yingling when we were really young mm-hmm. and that was pretty inexpensive. It's a little bit higher quality than like Natty Light or something like that, but, uh, you know, it's still cheap, but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, that's kind of my two cents or whatever on that. I, I don't really, I don't know exactly what's going on in the markets. It's, it seems like a weird trend to me and it does. And it seems like a short lived trend to me. And and, yeah. and the evidence and the the data right now seems to be talk, showing that as well. Where it's like the the, the rosé market, I, I wouldn't say that it's bottomed out, but it's like yeah, the rosé market's kind of saturated. I think so, and uh, you're also seeing like rosé ciders and these yeah. other things. So like, I think it's a trend. But yeah, I, I mean, you know, who knew we'd end up on rosé for so long? And like, given that, that's true. You know, we we're not generally huge rosé consumers, but yeah, um, plugs. Yeah, let's go with plugs. Yeah. So if you want to reach out to us, tastinganarchy at gmail dot com, tastinganarchy on Twitter, tastinganarchy on Instagram. You could also follow Childerberg, which is our annual event in Texas. Um, it is a gathering of the Liberty folk. It is fun. It is great. It is camping. It is hanging out in the park. We are going to be in Austin in 2020. It's going to be the 23rd through the 26th of May. It's going to. Uh, I, I keep saying bookend, but that's not really actually how bookend. Yeah, it's like works. it's like overlapping. So it's yeah, so it's like they be... have a day without us, and we have a day without them. Yeah. So for the Libertarian National Convention, so if you're going to be in town for the convention, come by and see us. We have exciting guests that hopefully will be attending. We can say that um, you, you Nick, you know, Nick, Nicky's already announced himself on another oh, podcast. So fantastic. Uh, so, so if you want to announce Nicky, you can. Yeah, so Nikki P with Sounds Like Liberty is going to be coming out and playing uh, for us, and hopefully there'll be other people who are going to be taking the stage with him. Um, so it's going to be a lot of fun. There's going to be all sorts of stuff going on during the day and things like that. So if you're going to you know, go out to the convention and then want to come out to the campsite and see everybody, uh, I can never remember the name of the park that we're going to be in. Emma, Emma Long Metropolitan Park. Yeah, so in Austin, so, you know, it's Austin, so hopefully we'll be able to get some uh, cool folk to come out that live in Austin, that are in the libertarian movement, that might have the same name as the winery that 
my wine was from. Who knows? Uh, <laughs> um, he's a very busy guy and he's got a lot going on, but you know, it's just down the street from him, hopefully. Um, you know, so, but yeah, there's going to be a lot of stuff going on, a lot of fun. So Childerberg on Twitter, Childerberg.com, um, our main fundraising fundraising tactic for it is shirts so if you guys like liberty based shirts check out childerberg um we had some exclusive shirts they are gone um however there are still shirts available and we should be doing additional uh releases and things like that as we get closer yeah uh, my goal is hopefully to have a childerberg shirt for every day of the event that is different um and we'll see if that happens and yeah then, um you know, also, this is put on by Friends Against Liberty, or Friends, Friends Against Liberty, Friends Against Government, uh, Fadcast, Bird, and Carr, who are our co-hosts with this. Um, so if you guys don't listen to them, give them a listen. That's right. And I wanted to ask you this, so I'll cut out dead air, because there is... So are you familiar with Headbangers Ballroom? Headbangers Ball? Ballroom. It was like an 80s MTV show. Yeah, it was Headbangers Ball. Headringer's Ball? I thought it was Headringer's yeah. Ballroom. No, Ball. Oh, oh okay. Well, I, I'll we'll go with that because you're you're probably correct, and I'm misremembering it. So you know, yes, you know, I'm familiar with it. Okay, so you know the guy who um, I don't remember if it's if it's Adam Curry or John Dvorak, um, but they both have a show, and their show is called No Agenda. Mm-hmm. So they they've announced Childerberg on their show. Yeah, you sent me the clip. Oh, I did. Okay, yeah. yeah. So like that's pretty big so exactly i'm pretty i'm really excited about this uh i mean like robbie the fire is like worn the childerberg shirt on the show so that's right Rob, yeah robbie talked. the fire and and you know i won't give away too much but robbie the robbie may be coming to childerberg so if you guys yeah. are interested in meeting him there's also two lions of liberty who have also said that they'll come by and maybe do some stand-up and also if you uh if you know Eric from the not from Peaceful Treason from uh, Rebel Without a Cause, uh, he or Rebel with a Cause, Rebel with a Cause, mm-hmm. he's also said that he'll do a little bit of stand up as well. So yeah, there's going to be then, some comedy, yeah. some music. Nikki P is going to be there, uh, possibly yeah. some some libertarians local to Austin who will do some music as well. So it's going to be a really fun, really cool event. So. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And go- hopefully, Howie Snowden will get to come. Oh man, that seems yeah, like that'd be super re- into it. He does seem really into it, and, and maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe I'll at least I'll see him maybe in November. So yeah, exactly. Uh, I think that's all I've got today. Anything else, Mason? All right, everybody, stay free. Drink it, man. Oh, give me some of that slop. Oh, pass that bottle to me. If you want to get along in Peter's town, buy some wine and pass it around. Age runs up to 49. All them cats, they love sweet wine. Drink it wine, for the you to drink wine. Wine, for the you to drink wine. Wine, for the you to drink wine. Pass that bottle to me. Hoy! Wine, wine, wine. Elderberry. Wine, wine, wine. Cherry, cherry. Wine, wine, wine. Blackberry. Wine, wine, wine. Horton sherry. Wine, wine, wine. Oh, pass that bottle to me. Now down on Gilsey at Willie's Den. 
he wasn't selling but American gin. One soldier wanted a bottle of wine. He hit that cat for a dollar and a dime. I drank a wine for the order, drank wine. Wine for the order, drank wine. Wine for the order, drank wine. Pass that bottle to me. Now I got a nickel, have you got a dime? Let's get together and get some wine. Some buys fifth and some buys four. When you get together, you're doing things smart. Drinking wine for the order, drink wine. Wine for the order, drink wine. Wine for the order, drink wine.